Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on yet another overcast day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Oliver Brettel, partner at White & Case, a global law firm uniquely positioned to help their clients achieve their ambitions in today's G20 world. Oliver, hello. Hello. Thank you for coming on the program today. Uh, we might as well dive straight in. What does the word leader mean to you? The word leader to me means the person, or it may sometimes be a collective leadership, but the person usually who is in charge of a given organization or in charge of a given organizational unit. And how would you describe your personal leadership style? Well, that's always a bit a bit tricky. I hope uh, that my personal leadership style is, uh, first of all, pretty consensus-orientated. Um, my leadership at the moment is in the context of a law firm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and a law firm consists, as you'd expect, of partners, and the partners are not the sort of group who would take very well to top-down leadership, but mm-hmm. more expect um, their leaders to seek consensus and then take, as needs be, uh, the difficult decisions, having weighed things up, looked at the pros and the cons, and so on. So I would hope that my leadership style is consensus orientated, but necessary. But I do take the necessary tough decisions when required. So a real collaborative workplace. Correct. Let's go back to the very beginning of your career when you first started out your working life. Were there any particular individuals or set of circumstances that really molded the way that you lead today? Yes, I think there were. I started off uh, my career as a lawyer in a very much smaller firm than the one I'm currently with, and also in a firm which was um, solely uh, located in London. But at that firm, I had the privilege of working directly with uh, a couple of partners day in, day out, who were experienced employment law practitioners, um, because I am an employment lawyer, in addition to being um, a, if you like, a, a leader in a law firm. And they taught me, you know, how to approach client service, how to be a professional advisor, i.e. making sure that you maintain your independence, make sure that you are prepared, that you are giving objective advice, um, and actually also the discipline, frankly, of hard work. And are these values you try and instill in those around you? I hope so. Um, and I, I think, you know, it's very difficult uh, these days as a lawyer in private practice to remember that you are, above all, providing your advice as a member of a profession and that the ethical standards of the profession trump everything else, Mm -hmm. um, even when that is not particularly convenient uh, for uh, the position that you may want to be advising your clients on. 
Now, I've spoken with uh, quite a few people in the legal field, whether they be solicitors or barristers, um, and a common uh, theme has emerged. And I was wondering if this is is something that you have also found, uh, that whilst uh, people in the law are very good at being in the law, there isn't really an established um, training scheme to run a business as a as a law firm is. Um, Do you find this to ring true? I think it is um, a challenge. Um, if you look at law 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 firms, you you come up through the ranks. You probably come up through the ranks because you are a successful practicing lawyer, and then you find yourself um, being promoted into a management role. I hear very similar things from people who maybe start off as teachers and end up in a leadership position in a school, mm-hmm. people who start off as accountants and end up in a leadership position in an accountancy firm. And actually, this is a well-known phenomenon. Indeed, I think Harvard Business School called it the producer-manager dilemma. So it isn't, um, it isn't unique to law. And it is found in many professions where, because you're a good practitioner, you end up managing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there has been a development over the last few years as law firms, it's focused back in on law, law firms have become so very much bigger. You do now have the phenomenon in the larger law firms of a full-time partner who manages, sorry, the partner who manages full-time, sorry, forgive me. Mm-hmm. And that phenomenon um, has also given rise to training. Uh, for example, Harvard Business School run courses, as does the Judge Institute um, in Cambridge, as does the Said Institute at Oxford. You know, there are now training courses for these people who become managers of law firms. But yeah, it, it is something which sort of approaches you somewhat stealthily. And before you know where you are, you are a manager rather than a practicing lawyer most of the time. Now, if you could speak to yourself a decade ago, what leadership techniques would you tell yourself to employ and which ones would you say leave by the wayside? Right. Well, 10 years ago, I was already on the Whiting Case Executive Committee, which mm-hmm. I'm still on. And 10 years ago, I was also head of the London office, which I led for, I think, just about 10 years. I suppose what I've learned in that 10-year period is that often your instincts are right, not always right, but often, and you can increase the chances of your instincts being right by being making sure you seek a broad range of views, see the comments made earlier about consensus. I think second, and this is a bit of a cliche, but you are often presented with a need to take a decision. The one thing which is clearly wrong is not taking a decision. At least if you come to a decision, yes or no, you might have a 50-50 or hopefully better chance of getting it right, whereas taking no decision is definitely wrong. Mm -hmm. So I suppose in the intervening 10 years, I've probably become more decisive when needs be. I think the third thing is, which is slightly going to contradict what I've just said, is that there then are situations which frankly benefit from a bit of cooking 
being left to one side and see how things develop rather than plunging in. And then the fourth thing I would say, which again feeds into the other two, is that that temptation of reacting to the person who's last in your room or the person you last sent you an email or last picked up the phone, that that temptation has to be resisted. You have to take a little step back, think things through, and then consider whether or not action is indeed required. Mm-hmm. Now, if I was to ask you to objectively identify the greatest leader, living or dead, who would that be? So, can you say the question again? If I asked you to objectively identify the greatest leader, living or dead, who would that be? I know it's quite tricky. Good goodness, I think I, I think that is. Uh, quite tricky I suppose it again this is a bit of a cliche um, I would pick Winston Churchill mm-hmm. but if I may slightly cheat and say that I would limit my focus on his leadership to the period 1940 through to 1944 um, and I think if you obviously the film Darkest Hour or uh, Seven Days which changed the world it, that that very specific period in May 1940 I think uh, he did demonstrate superb leadership skills now unfortunately our time together is very quickly drawing to its close but before I let you go what does the next 12 months have in store for White and Case well, I think, first of all, we need to consider what impact the coronavirus is going to have. And um, speaking now, we don't know. Mm-hmm. But let's leave that to one side. The next 12 months, I think you know, things are well uh, positioned globally. Um, the firm is a global law firm. And we had a, we had a strong uh, 2019, particularly strong end to 2019. So I'm pretty sure that we will see continued growth and continued investment. But there is no question that the coronavirus has led to a uh, stalling of economic activity in some parts of the world. And it remains to be seen uh, whether and to, the, and to what extent uh, the firm will need to react to that, along with you know, frankly, uh, the global economy as a whole. So, you know, we always live in uncertain times. And I suppose going back to your leadership questions, and I think one of the key things is to provide clear leadership insofar as you possibly can um, through difficult and challenging times. Well, Oliver, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing leadership with you. And I very much hope you'd come back on the program at some point in the near future. Oliver, thank you. Thank you, and I'd be delighted to do so. That was Oliver Brettle, partner at White and Case. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, we're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? 
Well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Although there are one or two people who are very familiar um, who, who do Google me realize that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool. Many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and, um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be playing, I guess, one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, yeah. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where... Um, so Jeff Hurst was a, a first-class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or, or football, obviously the importance of leadership, it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and a manager over many, many, many years. He um, He's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess. He would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you, you're very... Fortunate, I think you, you you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and uh, a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood, and of course uh, a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that of that calibre can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at. West Ham uh, with with a manager like like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players, and of course they become your friends. Who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peters? I think probably. Well, I was very fortunate to play with the caliber of the players I did. Again, mm-hmm. again, extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain. Um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters who was a fantastic player and some, as far as Martin's concerned I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was in terms of inspiring confidence I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me I guess would be the captain Bob Moore although he was only uh, about eight months older than me he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier he played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more, looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy with the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident. I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties. 
to car dealerships. And you could almost tell when you walked into the business, uh, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the value and quality of leadership. And that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved with my career in those early days with two, two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Al Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that. But obviously, uh, after uh, or at West Ham, your uh, plane came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man, I'm sure, when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, especially I say about Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, up naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand. Whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you, it can have a, a great impact on your <laughs> your career and of course your life. But yep. in that era, I was involved for six or seven years. He it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very very strict. Probably at a time at maybe overly strict but at the time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now but he was the most powerful man I came across and very few people and he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who he didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group part of a team it is important that if you've got a group of people and that's in any walk of life they're all singing off the same hymn for you and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned and I've taken on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in the group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless with that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think... Uh a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, if you could uh, perhaps pick right now that did show those uh, qualities in uh, South so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team or certainly in the squad and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of a group. Um, so that that's that for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it only a few games before. I was I was playing and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be be playing in, in the team but uh, in a couple of friendly games more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway I think in Denmark mm. I didn't I played two of the four games and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England and he, he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay he started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Hunt. So I, I had an impact of thinking I at that stage I, like I was going to play and didn't start because of just 
a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back into him because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Glee's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, if maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out now. Mm. So I never really felt, people talk about pressure a lot, and it's there, and people, players talk about, people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessarily feel any great pressure, pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important, to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that, that were left in the squad after he moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Alf showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were very... I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Um, we have some great players, but overall, they were great hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realise there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I... I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week, over the next uh, two three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about twenty minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> But the, the the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And of course, I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal. And I looked round, put my foot on the ball and looked round for a little while and said, oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch. So that's, uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that and saying, yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited to just have a, a glance round, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that such as stupid questions, really. Um, oh, yeah, there, are, there certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, and most stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely... But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we... Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You want. You got time. I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on. Go. On. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay. So I was uh, doing a, a, at a dinner in, in the Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honour, mm-hmm. 
on this occasion, I was speaking for about 20 minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening. And there was a couple of questions. And then all of a sudden, I heard a, somebody at the back who, who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Uh, well, uh, and we, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like that. I, just, but then I again, found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did, uh, um, it did make again, me laugh that if you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. Um, but there, there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff. I think um, you, you were a young man when obviously this happened. When you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you, or did you just realise that by by quick one way or the other? people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are. There are people who pay you compliments of the fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and, of course, in, uh, England fans who... Um, I, I think probably... Yeah, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest that I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, well, you, but, you don't but have to, but I will. No, um, well, it, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it. Uh, perhaps, um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you, and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a, a helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitches. People must realise that that's, that has an influence. How you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team laterally. Um, yeah, and and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with? Um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader. Um, well, a, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding. I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to. Their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that that comes through the leadership. That's not just 
luck. Absolutely. That's, that's absolutely the show. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson, who's just absolutely, mm. you've got to take him as the first example, but Klopp's only done this over a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United, and subsequently since he's gone, how they they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen. We've seen, we've probably ever seen, and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's ast- absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think? Could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Greenwood, yeah, the, the answer, straightforward answer is yes. Um, they, <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with, um, I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England. Who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership but uh, companionship and and level headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were, I was very fortunate, and I wouldn't take any one player out. I think looking at so that, many. yeah, so many, and that's why we were successful because we had so many. Um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team, I think that that was outstanding. And uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody. And I'm going back from an earlier earlier question for me that um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days. Every year, uh, up until about five years ago, of course, with, with the uh, sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on with, all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish after '66. That reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. um, getting on with each other, lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't and- when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those. I would pick every one of the 11 players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else. They were all outstanding. And I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We had some great players. We had some great players, of course. But without the attitude alongside that, going back to an earlier question, we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately, ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the, the the whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word, the word is team. Showed. The word is the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes uh, together, everyone achieves more, and that that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, uh, Jeff, looking if if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life, 
what would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single-mindedness, dedication, dedication to the job, um, thinking about that, that, that role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. If you, I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level. You may, you know, have a, have a couple of weeks holiday, but I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not, uh, there's, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation. And I think that's, you're completely focused. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over this, go over the past and just uh, refresh my mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.